0: As uh, Brad mentioned, we're in a series in First Peter called Gospel and Culture, and it's a series about this question of how is it that we live as people of faith in a culture that is continuously and increasingly antagonistic uh, to things of faith. And as was also mentioned, today we're kind of stepping back just for a minute from the text itself from First Peter and how we've been walking through uh, chapter by chapter and just wor- working through the text, and we're going to just focus on uh, this prevalent and also very challenging uh, topic uh, for the church that uh, we've been talking about in a number of settings recently, this topic of human sexuality. What does human sexuality look like in God's design? Well, as Mennonite brethren people, we are people of the book. And one of the distinctives of the MB denomination is of people of the word, people of scripture. And one of the ways that that is expressed and kind of played out is The fact that our conference holds study conferences every couple of years, and I know a number of you have been at those. I would highly encourage you, everybody that I've talked to who's gone, they've said, wow, that was better than I ever thought, and uh, just a great time to kind of wrestle together about uh, what the Word of God says and how we live it out uh, as a church, and so a number of us were there a week and a half ago. Um, One of the speakers that was there, Bruxy Cavey, was one of the the speakers, and he, he mentioned that he was... Saying to a friend of his how he was going to a study conference, a Mennonite Brethren study conference. And, you know, he got sort of the eyes glazed overlook. And it's like, oh my goodness, how boring can that be? Uh, and then he said, the topic, he said, is, yeah, it's called God's Sex in the Church. Then he had his attention. Uh, and he's like, oh, that sounds a little bit more interesting. Uh, but this was the topic that hundreds of leaders from across the country came together pastors, denominational leaders, lay leaders in the church gathered to study, to pray, to discern. To learn together and ask this question, how do we live out these questions, the many complex questions uh, as a church, and many from our church uh, were there as well. Um, If I asked you this morning for a show of hands, and I, I won't do that this morning, but if I did, if I asked for a show of hands, I would guess that many, many people would have confusion, questions, and even pain around this topic in one way or another. Maybe it's somebody who's close to you. Maybe it's a family member uh, who has come out gay and said that they struggle with same-sex attraction. Maybe it's you that has struggled with that yourself in one way or another. And I know that the issues of, of human sexuality are many. They're much broader than that. And we won't have time to touch on all of the topics, obviously, today. But, but we know that there are many, many related topics. It's not just about about sex or having sex in what context and so on. It's not about just gay and straight. It's about so much more. It's about singleness and marriage and divorce. It's about cohabitating and premarital sex. It's about pornography, sexual abuse, menopausal issues, sexual identity confusion, fertility technologies, and on and on and on. I mean, the, the topics just get more complicated and more challenging as they morph over the years. And it's hard at times to keep up with the language and the terminology. So this morning, I'm going to try uh, to not be too narrow um, in terms of the topics that we cover and how we focus, focus on it. We want to be broad enough to capture uh, a number of different things, and yet to be specific enough that hopefully it is helpful. But again, the reality is, is that we all have our stories. We're all created as sexual human beings. We all live with sexual brokenness in some form or another. And most of the stories are not known, I would guess. Some of the stories in our lives are public. Likely most are not in how you struggle with different areas uh, in this topic. But we all have them. And I would venture to say that we don't really know how to talk about them well, do we? There's even confusion. There's confusion around these issues and uh, sensitivities around these issues even within my own family. It's part of my family story as well. Uh, divorce, remarriage, cohabitating, a family member that came out as gay, um, in a family that finds it very difficult to talk about things, a family that that struggles to talk about contentious issues, and especially maybe even spiritual issues. How do we bring those things to the forefront? So I guess what I would want to say to us today is that we all need much grace. Much grace. We need grace for each other as we struggle with how to talk about it. And when people say things that we don't agree with or that we find offensive or whatever, that, that we extend grace to one another and just recognize that we're all making attempts at, at trying to talk well about an issue. And these are faltering steps that we take. I need grace today as I speak on this. Uh, no doubt there'll be things that I'll say that you'll misunderstand. Uh, no doubt there'll be things that I'll say that you'll understand clearly and maybe disagree with. And so... It'll raise many questions, and uh, definitely not all will be answered, or at least not adequately. But in the limited time that we have, I want to communicate as clearly as I can, even recognizing the limitations of one-way communication. We can't debrief and so on, and there will be a lifetime class again next week to to debrief if you want to come to that and also be a part of that. But we also need humility. We need humility for a number of reasons, especially for those of us who what I would say come from a place of privilege, like me, white, middle-aged, married, heterosexual man. It's a lot easier to talk about some of these issues when you come from that position. Um, but also we need humility if this topic hasn't pained you personally in some way. And not that your story doesn't matter, or your theology doesn't matter, or your perspective doesn't matter, but there is something about when this has pained you personally that you walk with more grace. And so I guess for those who this story has not really touched you directly, I would just simply say we need to walk carefully and humbly. Because you see, pain doesn't mean that we compromise the truth, but it does mean that we typically temper things and we um, uh, have much grace and love in terms of how we might act and react. And so we often come with just a little bit more love and grace in how we speak into it. Because, you see, the offense of the gospel is adequate enough. We don't need to add our own offense to the already complicated and challenging stories. And we don't need to add our own offense to the families and individuals who struggle with pain and loneliness and confusion and isolation in one way or another. And lastly, what I'll just say about some introductory things and in preamble is, is to remember that unity is not necessarily agreement, and agreement is not unity. And I say that to realize that in any context of a church like this, I recognize that there will be people of very diverse views, but it doesn't mean that you don't belong, and it doesn't mean that we sort of pack up and leave and kind of go our own way when we find that we disagree with certain things. That's part of discipleship is walking together in grace and truth and helping each other understand what does it mean to follow Jesus in a discipleship community. Well, I want to start by talking about three levels of the conversation. This is a a way that I found helpful uh, to talk about this issue and actually many theological issues in in many ways. And I want to talk about three levels of the conversation uh, that help us to understand uh, where we're at. And I think... We, we trip up when we're not clear on what level of the conversation that we're having. And I want to give you just a quick summary and then we're going to go deeper into each one of these because these really, these three are really the outline of my message this morning and how we'll kind of walk through this. So the first level of conversation is authority. And it's this highest level of the conversation. It's the primary level, I think, and it's the question of what has authority in your life? We have to start there and say, what is it that you look to, where is it that you go to that gives you authority, that is your grid, that is your foundation of where you come to for authority in your life? And it's really critical that we have awareness in these areas. And so as followers of Christ, we would say our authority is found in Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible, the gospel story of Jesus, this redemptive story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. It's this place that has authority for us. But we also have to recognize that for those who are not Christ followers, that, and when I think of the mainstream media and pop culture and how oftentimes this topic is discussed in our culture, my assumption is, is that they come with no authority in Scripture, that this is not their place of authority. And what happens when we have those conversations and we have authority of Scripture and somebody else does not have that is we just continually talk past each other and we'll never connect on these conversations because a place of authority is completely different. And that's why I think it's so important that we understand, first of all, what is our place of authority? What is the level that we are talking from? If we can agree on that, then we go to the second level of the conversation, which is interpretation. An interpretation is just simply asking the question of, well, what does the Bible say? If we can agree that uh, Scripture is our authority, then we have to ask the question, what does Scripture say? Do we understand what the Word of God says in any given issue, like human sexuality? And so that's the next level of the conversation. We can still debate and we can still wrestle with questions and even disagree with each other, but at least we have a common authority. At least we're working from the same framework, the same foundation, and the same text. And so hopefully we can land on an interpretation in that way. But then the third level is, is application. And where we often get in trouble is that we often start here. And we don't realize that we're missing each other on the other two levels of the conversation. But if we can agree, if the first two are in place, and if we have agreement on them, then we can go to this place of actually saying, okay, if Scripture's our authority, and if we understand the interpretation of Scripture and what it says, so what? Now what do we do? Now how do we live? And it brings up all these questions of how do I follow Jesus, Jesus if I'm a person with same-sex attraction? Understanding that acting on that impulse is sin. How do we function as a church in the live and let live, no judgment, sex charge culture that we live in, in a, in a world that doesn't even recognize sin of any kind? How do we respond as Christian parents and friends, maybe with somebody who comes out as gay? This is where it comes, the very practical level of just how do we live, how do we respond as friends, as family, as the church? How do we kind of respond in, in these different ways? And this is really the most difficult level. And the place where the debates rage and end up confusing and we, again, talk past each other because we're really not clear in the first two levels. And it also gets very challenging because this is the level where it gets really personal really quick. So now what I want to do is I want to just back up and I want to walk through each of these levels in more depth as they kind of frame our thinking for this morning. First of all, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start in looking at Matthew chapter 4. On this first level of authority, and this question of where is our authority? What do we place authority uh, in? And Matthew chapter 4 is a really uh, interesting uh, text that is the beginning of Matthew's account of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry. And what it starts with is it starts with Satan, the enemy, taking Jesus out into the desert and bringing temptations upon him. And so Jesus' ministry starts with temptation. It's a time of vulnerability for Jesus because it says there that he, he, for 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and he became very hungry. And then during that time, it says that the devil comes to him and says to him, well, you know what, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. And the temptation that, that the enemy gives him is one of a very basic human need of hunger. And how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he says, people do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then it goes on, and, and Satan tempts him again. And he, he tempts him under the idea of protection and safety in verse 5 and 7. It says that he took him up to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says, now this is interesting, Satan now quotes scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91. And he says, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up at their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. How does Jesus respond? He quotes scripture. He quotes uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16. And he says the scriptures also say you must not test the Lord your God. Then the devil takes him up to the peak of of a high mountain. Shows him all the kingdoms of the world and, and their glory. And he says I'll give it all to you if you'll kneel down and worship me. And Jesus says get out of here Satan. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. main point I'm making here is that Jesus could have played his trump card of just simply saying, I am God and you are a defeated enemy, but he didn't. He goes to his source of authority and the scriptures as they had that at that time, which was the Torah, the law of Moses, is what Jesus goes to and refers to and in times of temptation, in times of struggle, in times of challenge, he quotes Scripture. And so Jesus is affirming this place of authority that is there in his life. What's interesting is that even the devil places authority in Scripture because he quotes Scripture himself, twists it for his own purposes and own own ways, but he too quotes Scripture. And so if we are followers of Christ, my point in this is that Scripture needs to be our final authority, is that Scripture is the place that we, we need to place our trust and put the weight of these things upon in, uh, in Christian circles, as we wrestle with questions of authority, there are four common criteria for authority that we often look to in terms of shaping Christian thinking, theological understanding, uh, pastoral, and missional responses. And here are the four. First of all, there's experience uh, or intuition, which is just what, what's happened to you, what's your story, what, what have you gone through, and this is valuable and it matters, but it also leaves us vulnerable, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The second common criteria for authority is reason or science. It's an important authority, a valid authority, a God given authority, and it's something that we have to pay attention to, but it doesn't work well as a moral arbiter in terms of understanding how we sift through these things in, in terms of moral questions. The third uh, criteria for authority is often tradition. Now, in a pluralistic society with many denominations, let alone many religions, the question that is begged with this one is well, whose tradition? What tradition? Which do we look to as a place of authority? But then, lastly, is this one of Scripture. Because you see, what we need in all this is we need a theology. We need a sense and a story and words that explain who God is and what he has done. This larger story of the gospel of Jesus, which we find in scripture. Because you see, as I said earlier, our story does matter. Our experience does matter. Uh, The context that we come from, our own journey, whatever we have experienced, it is significant. And even at the study conference, we heard many powerful testimonies. But our experience only makes sense in the context of God's story. Our story only makes sense in the context of God's broader story. When we remove it, and actually that's what our culture does all the time, our culture elevates our personal experience to the absolute highest realm, that this is the trump card. If you have experienced it, then this has got to be truth. But even what we heard at the study conference, as people shared their stories, their own personal stories, they placed them in the context of God's broader story in order to make sense of them. And so even in the areas of human sexuality, we have to ask these questions. What is God's design as creator of human sexuality? What is his bigger story? And how does our story fit into that? Let's go to the second level of conversation or maybe level of awareness, interpretation. If we agree on the fact that God's story comes first and our authority is found in Scripture... Then, like I said, we go to the next level of conversation, which is interpretation. What does the Bible say? Can we agree on human sexuality in terms of what the Bible says about that? Now, I want to say and state right up front that the bottom line for the Mennonite Brethren Church denomination and our confession of faith, uh, so what our denomination believes and what the stance and position of Forest Grove Community Church affirms, you can find right in Article 11 on marriage, singleness, and the family, and I'll just read you a quote from the beginning of that. I think you have it up there. It says, Marriage is a covenant relationship intended to unite a man and a woman for life. At creation, God designed marriage for companionship, sexual union, and the birth and nurture of children. Sexual intimacy rightfully takes place only within marriage. And then it goes on in that confession of faith to expand on that more and explain more in this area. But here's also what's, what's interesting about this as you look at our confession of faith. And an important reminder in this discussion because what's stated right in the very next section of that is this, also this statement on singleness. It says this, Singleness is honored equally with marriage, sometimes even preferred. The church is to bless, respect, and fully include those who are single. Those who remain single may find unique opportunities to advance the kingdom of God. God calls all people single and married to live sexually pure lives. It's interesting, this was a reoccurring theme in the study conference. And this challenge and this call that we need a deeper and fuller theology of singleness. And not only a theology of that, but a practice of that in terms of how is it that we live this out in the church. And we don't have time today to go deeply into these texts, and I'll just make reference to the one in Matthew 19. It was one that was spoken on in the text. I think it has lots to offer in this area of singleness. But also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that speaks to that as well, where. Paul is instructing the Corinthian church and he's speaking to them, a very instructive text, and he says, you know, it's actually better that you live single. In fact, he's imploring them, he says, why don't you be like me and actually live single and live a celibate life? He says, I wish all were single, because then you can serve the Lord without distraction. And Paul concedes in that text, he says, that some have been given the gift of marriage and some have been given the gift of singleness. And two times in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 Paul says, you know what, just so you know, if you marry, it's not a sin. It's kind of funny because Bruxy Cavey was one of the speakers at the conference and he, he had a great line in there where he just said, you know, he's used that as a wedding text a few times, you know, which didn't go over really well, but he just said to the couple, you know, just so you know what you're doing here today, it's not a sin. It's okay. But Paul is saying that. He's saying that, that really uh, marriage is almost given as a concession here in this text But he's elevating and highlighting, just like it does even in our confession of faith, the place of singleness. Now this is where I need to just pause for a minute to give a confession and apology. I think as a church, we have not done well in this area. I think as a church in general, and and even our church specifically, we have at times elevated marriage and families to a place that maybe Scripture doesn't even actually go. And in doing so, we've diminished and alienated those who are single, whatever the reason, choice or not, widowed or divorced. And I'm sorry that we have done so poorly in that, that we have not elevated and encouraged singles more. And may you forgive us for that. My prayer is that we would, as a church, find a more complete theology and practice in this area. And I think it's especially important as we wrestle with some of the applications that we'll talk about a little bit later on. But let's return to this question of interpretation. Again, we're on level two, interpretation of God's design for human sexuality. What does Scripture say? What were God's intentions? And again, I will just touch on a few. And if you go to the website, you can listen to the plenary speakers and listen to the the study that was done in so many of the different texts. But for a time this morning, I will just touch on a few. In Genesis 1 and 2, uh, it speaks about God's original design in a number of ways. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it speaks of a marriage relationship, of a man leaving a father and mother and cleaving to his wife, joined as one. And then at the end of chapter 2, it describes how the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3, what we often refer to as the fall. When the enemy comes in and, and tempts Adam and Eve and they fall to sin and sin enters into the story. As Satan twists and distorts their understanding and their relationship with God, the world and their place in it. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 how Adam and Eve then were alienated from God in broken relationship and how also now as they were together, they were naked and they felt shame and they covered themselves up. So here we see the beginning of broken relationships, broken sexuality, Now played out for the rest of the Old Testament and entering into God's redemptive story throughout the New Testament as well. If you continue on, you you see the brokenness of these things so often. It's just pervasive throughout the Old Testament. It has many different expressions. In Genesis chapter 19, it it speaks very explicitly of the sexual and, and relational distortion That is there. It talks about the homosexual acts and how Lot's daughters even got their father drunk so that they could sleep with him in order to continue on the family line. If you go into the New Testament in Jude uh, 7, it makes reference to this account that is being talked about in Genesis 19. And Jude 7 says it this way "And, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment continue reading on in the the, uh, Old Testament and you come to other places in the Mosaic Law, like Leviticus 18 and 20, it talks about how this distortion continues and it gives us clear prohibitions against homosexual activity, even if consensual. And then in the New Testament, this trajectory of this teaching and this position or understanding of what Scripture says continues. And I read in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 to 32. Paul is speaking to the church in Rome and he's talking about how this sin entered the world and caused broken relationship, broken sexuality in so many different ways. And he says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do not, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. You know, there's just so much evidence here that is given of broken relationships, broken sexuality, acted out in all kinds of distorted desires. What's interesting is it's almost like Paul is setting them up. Because if you read, continue reading on in in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the very next uh, verse, Paul says this, you may think that you can condemn such people, But you are just as bad and you have no excuse. Then he goes on and he starts to talk about the grace of God and the redemption that is found as we confess our sins and we receive this gift of freedom and the forgiveness of sins from Jesus Christ, which the book of Romans just goes on at length as he teaches this text. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see a text that tells a bit of a similar story. The Apostle Paul here writing to the church in Corinth that struggled with all kinds of uh, challenges and the brokenness that they were going through and how to be the church in that setting as well. And Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then just similar to like he did in Romans 2 verse 1. Turns the corner a little bit and he says, some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So we see in these texts, and we see as you look at Scripture from Old Testament to New, that all clear scriptural references of homosexual acts in the Old Testament and New Testament are painted in a negative light. But we also have to know that it's not the super sin. It's not like it's the, the big one that we seem to kind of see it as in our world today. Because if you read these texts, you see all these other sins that Paul is mentioning, all these other things that we so easily gloss over. But there are many sexual sins that are listed here. All forms of sexual immorality are serious to God for sure. Not to mention all the other sins that are listed here. What Paul is saying to them is he's saying this is not your identity. When you become a follower of Jesus and when you give your life to him and you confess your sin, you have a new identity. You are a changed person. You go in a new direction. These do not need to define you. We have an identity in Christ through repentance and forgiveness. One of the books that was recommended through the study conference was a book called Washed and Waiting by Wes Hill, which I would recommend as good reading. And Wes Hill is one who picks up on this text from First Corinthians chapter 9, and he picks up on this imagery of, of being washed and waiting, living with the brokenness. A Christian man who's committed to pick up his cross and to follow Jesus but who also identifies himself as gay in terms of orientation and his impulses and desires. That he identifies from the brokenness of the fall, that he identifies as as he sees coming into the the world through the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But he also sees and understands and embraces the interpretation of scripture and seeing that this is not God's design or God's intent. And therefore he cannot give in to this temptation and commits to a life of celibacy because because of it honoring God as one who struggles with the very unique brokenness. Finally, we come to level three. Again, of application. Given the authority of Scripture, and even if we can agree on interpretation of this question of what Scripture says about some of these things, it still leaves us with the very challenging question of, what now? What do we do? So, how do we live? How do we be the church? How do we... Be friends to one another? How do we be family to one another? How do we hold truth and grace together? How does that look? How do we function in a culture that places no authority in Scripture whatsoever, where we will be talking past each other on a regular basis? How do we respond to a family member or a friend who is gay but wants to follow Jesus? How do we do that? I want to just offer you uh, maybe six points of application Some of them are a bit of summary again. But hopefully they'll be helpful uh, for us in this conversation. Which I would encourage us that we need to continue in this conversation beyond today. And the first point is is just that God is creator and designer of our sexuality. And oftentimes we start in Genesis chapter 3. We start in the place of brokenness and the fall and the sinfulness of man and so on. And we often preach from that place. But what we also have to recognize is that. We need to start in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God created man and woman, and God made it good. This was God's original design, God's original intent. Second point of application is that we are all sexually and relationally broken and in need of God's grace. Because Genesis 3 does come after Genesis 1 and 2. And there is distortion there in our relationships, in our sexuality. There is brokenness there. And the more that we can recognize that we too are part of that brokenness, the more we are able to walk alongside those who carry a unique burden. And so there are sexual distortions, and we all have them, whether gay or straight, and we need God's grace. One Ontario pastor, he gave this quote, and he's from another denomination, but he said it this way, In short, the truth about us and them is that there is no them. There is only us. We are all beautiful and precious people, infinitely valued by God. We are also all sexually broken people to one degree or another, needing the healing of authentic community to live as Jesus calls us to live. So the more that we can recognize and confess our own sin in these areas that Paul talks about in these texts, the more we can walk alongside others. And by the way, singleness didn't come with the fall. We need to remind ourselves of that. Apostle Paul was single, he held it up as the ideal, just as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. Jesus, as fully human, was the perfection of humanity. He did not marry or have sex, and he lived the complete and full life that we are called to. We need to remind ourselves of that. But the reality that relational and sexual brokenness did come in there, and we are broken by sin, but we are redeemed by Christ. Thirdly, I think we need to clarify terms and be careful with slogans. We need to be careful of what we lump together and how we say things and just sort of put it all in the same pot when we're talking about gay, homosexual, same-sex attraction and on and on and on. We need to differentiate between orientation and actions, between what our unique temptations are, which is not sin, and the actions that give in to that temptation, which are sin. And this is true both for the heterosexual and the homosexual. There are also, I think, unhelpful slogans that we sometimes use. I've used them. Where we say things like, well, we need to hate the sin but love the sinner. Or we need to be welcoming but not affirming. And those work in conservative Christian circles where we come from a common understanding and so on. But as we're trying to walk with other people in those places, even though they speak a measure of truth, they are received only as hurtful or painful and very distancing in every way. And they become quite unhelpful. Because when things are so personal, pat answers aren't that helpful in this conversation. Fourthly, I think we need to do community and intimacy better as God intended. We have so far to go on understanding what it means to truly be a faith community. To truly understand how it is that we welcome people into intimate relationships in a church. What does that look like for those who are single and heterosexual? What does that look like for those who are single and struggling with the same-sex attraction? How do we help people find intimacy in places in, uh, in the church? The working definition in the study conference for human sexuality was this one. It was just simply embodied desire for in- intimacy. Embodied desire for intimacy. That we all have this desire for a deep intimacy that we see right there in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see it there in the Trinity. And again, Wes Hill in this book, Washington, Waiting, he writes about the heart of despair that can so easily plague the hearts of gay Christians, those who have the same-sex attraction desires but choose not to act on it because of God's design in Scripture. And he says it this way, and I quote, he says, the struggle to be faithful to the gospel's terrible decree that we must hold in check our strongest urges and not engage in homosexual activity, the struggle to belong, to find the end of loneliness, and the struggle with shame with nagging feelings of being constantly displeasing to God. I've met with um, a couple of young men who've told me their stories of this struggle and would declare themselves as gay, but yet choosing to remain celibate because of the call of Christ. Most recently, even just this past week, meeting with a young man who this, this too was his story, his angst, his loneliness, but also his determination to be faithful to Scripture, to not act on internal desires, but to walk with Jesus, even with that heavy burden. I admire that courage. Fifthly, there are sexual boundaries for all people. And I think sometimes we forget that. We need to remind ourselves ourselves of that. We are all called to abstain at certain times in life, at certain seasons in life. Uh, for those even who get married, the years before married, uh, called to abstain from sex, given what Scripture says. For those who remain or are single again, uh, one pastor calls it this way. He says, it is consistent sexual sacrifice. And that is a call for all of us, not just those with same sex attraction. He says, to, that, to the heterosexual young person, Or single person, we need to say, you know what? Stop sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend because it's sin. To the married person uh, is the person who is called to an all-but-one celibacy, which sometimes, too, can be extremely challenging, especially if there is brokenness and challenge in that marriage relationship where the very person that you're married to is the one who can hurt you the most. Or maybe there's sickness or illness or other things within that context which leads to long seasons or a lifetime of celibacy in that context as well. You know, there's, there is great meaning and intimacy, even in sexual restraint. And we need to find that truth again, that we are all called to this in one way or another and at different seasons. And then sixthly and lastly, is that we need to learn uh, that learning to walk with truth and grace will be messy Even when we come from level one of understanding the authority of Scripture and we can maybe agree on level two that we agree on the interpretation of what Scripture says, when we come down right to where the rubber hits the road and we ask those questions, so now what do we do? How do we live? How do we be a family? How do we be the church? It's going to get messy. This is where we need all kinds of grace for each other to walk in this with humility and grace, holding out truth but at the same time extending So much grace. Because you know what? We'll all have inconsistencies. We do need to speak truth to people. Uncompromising truth, but also with so much love as well. And one of the things that we often hear in our world today is, you know, just this phrase, well, you know, don't judge. You can't judge other people. And yet, when you look at Scripture, you see that the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that We are called to keep to account those that are in the body of Christ, those that are believers. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says to the church there, he says, you know what, you have this young man who's actually living with his stepmom and sleeping with her. And you think because of your freedom in Christ that you're doing a really good thing, that this is great, and just to accept and welcome him into the church community. And Paul says, no, it is sin and it is wrong and you need to call it so. In fact, he says you need to toss that person out of the faith community. And turn him over to the devil. Why? So that he will recognize the depravity of his sin and he will come back to Jesus. That you can welcome him back into the kingdom of God again. Sometimes we speak truth from a very high place and a condemning place. But what Paul in Scripture talks to us about is speaking truth from a very personal place where we come very close and alongside people and we are actually intimately involved in their lives and we know their stories. Because we're called to that. And and Paul says as he goes on in in chapter 5, I'll just read this. He says, When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you were not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worship idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So Paul makes this clear. He says... In the context of the church, as believing people who hold authority in Scripture, who understand interpretation, we have to hold each other to account with grace and love. But so often we ramp up the truth meter and we forget to ramp up the love meter. That was something that came through in this conference as well too. If we're going to crank the truth meter up to 10, we have to crank the love meter up to 10 as well. We don't do that very well. If you look at Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus also talks about this in a similar way where he talks about that kind of accountability. And Jesus is talking about uh, a person who recognizes that somebody has sinned against them. He says, if somebody has sinned against you, go to that person and if they confess and you can reconcile, you can work that out. If it doesn't happen, then you take one or two people with you and you go and you talk and if they don't recognize their sin and their need to change, then you bring it to the church. And if there still is no repentance, then what does Jesus say? He says, then you treat them like pagans and tax collectors. Again, what's the heart of Jesus in this? It's that they may see their need for the salvation of Christ and forgiveness of sins and come back to the kingdom. And it begs the question, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax, tax collectors and prostitutes? He ate with them. He went into their homes. He spent time with them. He embraced them in many levels, but never embraced their sin. But he didn't start or he didn't lead oftentimes with that truth thing. He embraced them because he knew that they were outside of the kingdom of God. And he said, we need to woo these people in the kingdom of God and help them to see the love of Christ. So when it comes to practical applications, we need to recognize that it will get very messy. We will not agree with other people's positions on how to do this or how to respond to that. As we all struggle together to hold these two things of truth and grace together. How do we ramp up the truth meter and also ramp up the love meter at the same time? We typically have not done that really well. And I pray that God will give us wisdom and grace to avoid the extremes and to do this much better. Heavenly Father, these are very challenging texts. And these are difficult truths to reconcile with the culture that we live in today. And so God, as we wrestle with this question of gospel and culture and how do we live as a church in this culture, how do we proclaim and live the truth of the gospel? Oh, Lord, may you give us wisdom. Heavenly Father, we need your grace. And Lord, we want to be people of truth, people of the book, people of your word, uncompromising in every way. But Lord, will you help us to know how to walk in grace? And Lord, I pray that as we go from here today that we would extend that forgiveness to others, but that we would also recognize the need for that forgiveness for ourselves. And so God, we pray that you would guide and guard our conversations as we talk about these things in the days and weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.